0: This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders, with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the episode. 2020 has officially come to an end, another year in the book, so we just really quickly wanted to say thanks for listening and supporting us over all the years. And without you guys... Really, none of this would be possible, and we promise we have a ton of really cool things planned for 2021, so just stay tuned. This episode couldn't be any more timely. Bitcoin, as of as the time I'm recording this on like January 3rd, 2021, Bitcoin's in an absolute tear. It's currently sitting at $33,500 per Bitcoin, which is an all-time high, and it's like four times what it was a few weeks ago. And most people I know who really know what Bitcoin is are pretty bullish on Bitcoin as a whole. But now this latest rally seems to be fueled mostly in part by a lot of institutional investors buying up a ton uh, as fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar are facing impending rapid inflation due to the Federal Reserve just printing as much money as they want to pay for all these stimulus checks. So uh, long story short, USD eventually down, Bitcoin's going up. That seems to be the thesis. And that's really not what the episode is about, but I wanted to give you a little bit of context because we had Coley Kavnis of Crusoe Energy Systems on the show to talk about how they are offering a flare solution for upstream operators without access to pipelines. So, their digital flare mitigation systems convert otherwise wasted natural gas into electricity to power energy intensive Bitcoin mining and other computing rigs right there at the well site. Um, So, really excited for this episode. Hope you guys really enjoy it. Before we get into it, let's take two minutes to run through our TPH Energy Insight of the week. So, Saudi Ramco and Cognite have created a joint venture to accelerate their industrial digitalization. Um, You know, obviously, Saudi Ramco is the world's largest integrated oil and gas company. Um, They've got assets all over the place, particularly in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Uh, And they're looking to deploy some of Cognite's flagship industrial data platform, uh, the Cognite Data Fusion. Um, with this core technology, and they're harnessing a lot of cloud capabilities, data hosting, analytics, and artificial intelligence. Spent a lot of time looking at Cognite's website. I don't know exactly what they do, but I kind of vaguely understand. It's a really, really neat website. seems like they have a lot of offerings. Um, We want to get them on the podcast. Yeah, we'll have to get them on the podcast sometime. That way they can come talk to us and tell us exactly
1: what they do and what they're doing with the Ramco. But it's interesting to see
0: they just raised $75 million. I just saw, I just pulled up a press release, October 27th, $75 million uh, Series A at a 550, $550 million valuation. And the interesting thing was, you know, we've talked a lot about VC funds that don't really invest into oil and gas. Excel is one of the top tier VC firms in the world, and they led this round. And so, I think that's actually a huge thing, which is maybe we should get Excel in the podcasts too. I mean, they're kind of following the footsteps of founders fund and Andreessen Horowitz. And so you're starting to see the tides change. Some of the biggest VC funds in the world or the most respected are now investing in oil and gas and energy.
1: Yeah. What I like about this deal is you look at Cognite and I think you said that they, they raised what $75 million at a half a billion dollar valuation. And that's a decent sized company, but it's not huge in terms of Silicon Valley startups. Right. And so When you hear about a JV with Aramco, we automatically thought that Cognite was some big, huge company. And, you know, it's really just a Series A startup. So it makes me hopeful that there will be room for um, collaboration and opportunity for other energy tech startups to work with Aramco and some of these other um, national energy companies, oil companies, and kind of open the path. Whereas, you know, that might have not existed, you know, five to 10 years ago. So I think it's net positive for the tech ecosystem.
0: And while Cod9 is like based out of Norway, I mean, Saudi Aramco has a huge uh, presence with the uh, Saudi Aramco Ventures. There's a couple of people who um, we know who who work for Saudi Aramco Ventures, and they're constantly vetting and and looking for new technology and stuff. So like you said, I think there's signs of more things to come for for these guys. Um, So interesting time for startups. A lot of good things to look forward to. Uh, Go check out TPH's uh, e-tech newsletter. Go sign up for that. And let's get right into the episode. What is going on, walkheader Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. This one has been a long time in the making. We've got our buddy, Kali Kavnis from Crusoe Energy Systems here. What's up, man?
2: How are you guys? I'm, I'm excited to do this. I've been looking forward to this. and I know we've been talking on and off for a while. Um, you know, I just want to say, I think you guys have an awesome platform here. You should be really proud of what you put together. Thanks, man. And I think you're, you're in a position to- You know, do a lot of good by sharing a lot of very important information and bringing together some different perspectives into one spot. So it's exciting.
0: Thanks, man. Really appreciate that. We
1: we have a lot of people that are excited for this episode to drop. I teased it a couple days ago on Twitter. Um, There's a lot of there's been a lot of talk, not only on Twitter but in the industry as a whole, on Bitcoin mining off of natural gas flaring. So I think this episode is going to be highly viewed. A lot of people want to hear your take on it and hear what Crusoe's doing. So, why don't you tell us real quick what Crusoe Energy is and what you guys do?
2: Sure, yeah. Uh, so, Crusoe is in the business of digital flare mitigation. What we do is we capture natural gas that was being flared and uh, we use that to generate power on site and then use that power in mobile modular data centers. And um, we then connect those data centers to the outside world via satellite or other wireless connectivity usually. And it's a way to basically beneficially use that energy that was being wasted and uh, put it to a beneficial purpose and, uh, and also achieve a lot of emissions reductions and a lot of environmental benefits because we're fully combusting that methane. And methane usually is not fully combusted in a flare. So some percentage goes to the atmosphere. And um, A big part of our value proposition is being able to really get those emissions down on the uh, you know, CO2 equivalent.
0: So, you guys are actually going full stream. So, you were actually doing the natural gas, so generation from natural gas, but also the data center portion and the Bitcoin mining portion?
2: Yeah, we are a power generation plus on-site data center.
0: So, Cole, a few
1: years ago, I tweeted about this and there wasn't a oil and gas community on Twitter yet. It was only a bunch of crypto nerds. And so, when I tweeted about using natural gas to power data centers, I got a lot of flack for it. And people were like, oh, this would never work. And, you know, when did you start looking into this? And, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, too. What led up to the point of Crusoe? And let's start there.
2: Yeah. So, you know, my background is, is really from... You know, kind of going all the way back, I grew up in Denver here in an oil and gas family background. My dad was, um, was in the minerals business long before that was like a sort of institutional business model. He, he as an individual, um, was, you know, going around and buying up interests in, you know, fractional pieces of, of minerals and putting together portfolios of minerals and sort of anticipating where the drill bit might go and um, anticipating where sort of, you know, acreage values might go. And he, he really was just an entrepreneur in that business model long before anybody else kind of thought about that. And from a young age, I was helping him with that. And you sort of get exposed to the upstream business model and a lot of the operators around here in Denver that way. Um, so I, I kind of grew up just around the business and then went to college in uh in Vermont at Middlebury College, which is sort of the epicenter of the environmental movement. And this, you know, had a huge impact on me. Uh, I went there to study geology and economics. And originally I was just like, you know, I'm gonna go into the oil business. That's that's kind of the the clear path for me and just continue my family's business. My grandfather had been in the oil business before my dad and you know that seemed pretty obvious. And I get there and like not only are all my classmates just like horrified that you know, I would even consider going in the oil business. Um, but this was also when An Inconvenient Truth came out my freshman year. We had this professor, Bill McKibben, who started 350.org, big climate change, nonprofit. And it made a huge impact on me. And it really changed. It got me started on something that I continue to this day to, you know, really think about a lot. And it's the, the triangle of ease, you know, energy, economy, environment. I, I think about that relationship. Um you know, constantly, that's really been the center of my career is trying to, you know, balance that. And I, I would love to talk about it here. I think it's a very important thing for everyone to, on kind of both sides of the aisle in all different areas of society, to have a view on energy, the economy, the environment, and how it all relates. And you guys have done a really good job of, you know, bringing clean tech into the energy conversation with an oil and gas Base, I think, and so that's why I think what you what you have here, you have actually a very large responsibility with digital wildcatters, which is, uh, you know, because of who you guys are, you're sort of younger, you're you're more, you know, trendsetters, you're you're a little bit, you know, more on that that like hip and up and coming end of things. You've got a chance to appeal to a really broad audience, and it's not just your sort of conservative oil and gas crowd. I think you're going to be able to like really bridge this gap. So. I would love to sort of, you know, be a part of that conversation, but you've got a lot of work to do, you know, for years to come to fully get that done. So, you know, I graduated from college and I actually uh, I was a Thomas Watson fellow. And so this is like the founder of IBM gives 40 students a year. A budget to travel the world for a year and study the subject of, of their interest, and i went out looking for geothermal energy so i had this budget and i went to like 20 countries that year i lived in iceland i went to i spent a long time in china um, you know kind of learning about the other side of the energy industry the coal industry who worked with like a mongolian coal broker to learn what that was like uh, i went to spain and worked at a solar manufacturing these are all internships just free internships it's like i'm funded so i'm just going to show up and do work and try to learn about what's going on here and build my context of the energy industry and so uh you know solar in spain and then um, micro hydro project in argentina and you know i really sort of started to develop a view of the energy industry and the energy transition um and you know a lot of impoverished countries where i saw how important energy poverty was and my view today is really shaped from a lot of those experiences of believing that every day the oil and gas industry goes to work, we're saving the world. We're like literally keeping 7 billion people alive, but we're also jeopardizing very important things about the future of the world with, with, you know, long-term unmitigated carbon fueled economy is not a good thing either. And so that's the transition. And, you know, that's what I think the most important conversation is about the triangle of ease is how we get from here to there. So, um, you know, I, I went then uh, back into the oil industry after some time in geothermal power. I was a you know, business development manager for a geothermal power company, uh, still working internationally, came back to the oil business after going to business school at Oxford and um, went to Petrie Partners, which is a boutique oil and gas investment bank here in Denver. So this is just uh, you know, a really good platform to learn the sort of M&A and finance side of oil and gas uh, from there, I was I was vice president of finance at Highlands Natural Resources. We were through so your traditional small small team with some private equity capital, and we had a, a farm out from Conico Phillips in the Southern DJ Basin.
0: I'm pretty sure I we about were,
2: Highlands, uh, uh, were drilling hybrid how- wells, and uh, you know we were trying to basically prove up a new portion of the DJ Basin. It was considered pretty exploratory at the time. We were miles away from the nearest well. We were way far to the south, and um, we drilled some very commercial oil wells that didn't have gas takeaway. And so we were flaring. We were flaring a few million cubic feet a day. And it brought me back to sort of my Middlebury days of like telling my friends um, about what I do, you know, at a dinner party. And, and, you know, the idea of lighting on fire millions of cubic feet of gas every day was embarrassing. It was like very. It was very upsetting for me to be sitting in that position. And as the finance person, I was also for midstream and marketing. And we're, we're like trucking the oil to the Sunco refinery in Denver. And there's just no, no kind of answer that was easy for the gas. Um, so that's really what got the wheel spinning for you know, for me on, could there be a better solution for flaring? Because a lot of companies are in this position where there's a commercial oil well, you know, the world needs the oil. Um, and we can talk about that. I think, I hope we will, it's the social value of that and the imperative of continuing to produce the oil, but we shouldn't be wasting the natural gas or emitting a lot of methane along the way. Like we can do much better here. Um, and so solving an environmental problem, a regulatory problem and a commercial problem. And, uh, you know, i have been mining Bitcoin in my basement as a hobby. My wife would like go down to the basement and she's like, what the hell is this thing? It's hot. It's loud. You know, there's like, Wind (laughs) the power bill has gone through the roof. And, uh, and and so from there, you know, that's really, that's really where I started talking to my co-founder Chase Lockmiller. So deep technology background went to MIT and Stanford and long story short, we put our head together and started with a pilot project in the powder River basin with an operator that uh, was willing to give us a chance. They had a flare that they couldn't solve with pipe and, um, you know, the rest is kind of history. We, we turned on the generator one night in January 2019, the flare shrank, all the Bitcoin mining servers lit up green and you know, we started getting crypto revenue and selling that for dollars. And that's when digital flare mitigation was born. Since then, we've grown to, you know, about 50 people now. We've, um, we've raised on the order of about $100 million and deployed most of that into just generators, servers, data centers, the team you know, building out the infrastructure where we've got more than 30 systems deployed now throughout Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming, and Colorado, and we process, you know, on the order of 10 million cubic feet a day of gas, we've, we've actually uh, mitigated more than a billion cubic feet in total. And so, you know, you kind of put this into perspective from what the, the CO2 equivalent is, if that if that portion of methane had been leaked which is the case with the flare and it's you know it's lifetimes worth of carbon we're very proud of the sort of environmental benefits there but also just that it pays for itself you know this we don't go to the operator and ask for much it's free it just let us take care of the problem for you we we'll can pay you a little bit for the gas and um, you know let's make the flare go away and so I think you know that's how you scale an environmental solutions so you find a way to make it pay for itself that's really always the, the trick. And so whether that's coal to gas switching, it's the biggest example of an environmental pain for itself um, or Crusoe, you know, doing what we're doing with flaring. I think that's a important message and concept.
1: So there's a lot to unpack here. You know, I think that we could talk a lot about the energy transition and, you know, you just explained how oil and gas is fundamental to the world and has brought us out of energy poverty. And there's still many parts of the world that do suffer from energy poverty. So, um, oil and specifically natural gas are important to those parts of the world. But I think, you know, we probably have a lot of people that are listening to the podcast that aren't familiar with Bitcoin or Bitcoin mining. Yeah. And so, let's start at a high level on, yeah, what is a data center? You know, you painted a really cool picture right there, by the way, talking about, you know, flipping it on and seeing the flare shrink and all the Bitcoin miners light up green. that That's awesome, man. I love that. But let's talk about what it actually is. Um, you know, we don't have to get too in the weeds of the mining of what Bitcoin mining sure. is, but kind of paint a picture of what we're actually talking about here.
2: Sure. Yeah. It's So, the way this looks kind of visually is, uh, it's from the outside, it looks like shipping containers almost. Uh, they're we built everything into the footprint of a shipping container, but inside it's very heavily engineered. So the electrical systems, the networking systems, the power distribution, um, the racking, and you kind of walk into the shipping container, open the door, and down one side it's hundreds of servers, and they've all got sort of blinking lights, and they've got fans just kind of moving air through them to keep them cool. Um, and it's kind of like what you would visualize, you know, in some sci-fi movie where you're in the matrix. There's all the servers with all the lights and the networking cables and power cables. Um, but that's really what the data center piece of it is. It's a box full of very specialized computers. And what they're doing is processing and validating transactions that are occurring with Bitcoin. So, you know, if Colin sends Jake one Bitcoin, a computer, a third party computer needs to say, you know, minus one from Colin's wallet plus one to Jake's wallet. And that's, you know, that's happening at a very large scale and it's happening in a distributed way. Um, So what the miners are, it's a loaded term, but really what you are is you're the visa of the Bitcoin network. You're the payment processor. You're you're the one that's kind of securing and validating transactions. And you get rewarded with a fraction of a Bitcoin for uh, for participating in that every time that you successfully validate transactions you get rewarded with a fraction of a, of a newly created Bitcoin um, plus some service fees and that's really the revenue model it's it's in BTC and then we you know the, the approach we've taken is that we we liquidate most of that on a continuous basis into dollars because we're paying you know you know at this point now we've got you know real payroll and and, and, and costs in dollars um, we do keep some of it in Bitcoin but that's kind of how that works. And then from the power generation side, which is very near and dear to my heart, it's um, it's reciprocating engines. So we've partnered with Waukesha, big American uh, engine manufacturer, historic. They've been around for a long time. Um, and we we use two megawatt class generators, 2,500 horsepower. They each consume about 300,000 cubic feet per day of rich gas. So like Bakken quality, 1,500 BTU rich gas. And they can do it on swinging fuel compositions. We've worked really closely with the Waukesha team to to engineer and specify a package that's good at at rich gas and changing gas compositions because we're taking it directly from the separator. So there's really no special treatment here. It's like we put a a two-phase at the end of the gas line before it goes in the generator, but it's... It's taking rich gas and it's fully combusting it. And then we just put the best possible catalysts we can for emissions control on top. So you could permit this next to a hospital. I mean, it's sound attenuated, it's it's quiet. They're all brand new, like every safety and environmental feature you can put in the package we did. And now we've deployed 40 megawatts of those. We've got you know just a lot of that type of package deployed in the field. Um, So that's, that's more or less the setup. It's power generation and then electrical into data center. Data center then goes through satellite or microwave towers to the internet. And all that can be delivered in about a few days on site and just very modular and mobile and try to make it it really easy operationally for the client. So let's talk about how
0: much Nat gas it takes to generate one Bitcoin. That's an interesting question. We don't really think of it
2: that way. you know, it's we think much more in terms of like hash rate and the computing power required to mm-hmm. to to generate Bitcoin. But um, yeah, you know, one of those one of those modules, it's it's not like it's generating a full Bitcoin a day or anything like yeah, that. So yeah, we're yeah. talking about like fractions of a yeah, yeah. uh, of a Bitcoin, and then yeah. so you add it up to. You know, whole portfolio, is <laughs> where it starts to get, get into bigger numbers. Okay.
1: You're talking in terms of Satoshis, right? So, you know, min- minimal amounts of Bitcoin. So let's talk about the operational side of the power generation. Cause I know someone on Twitter asked the other day, um, they weren't, they weren't talking about Crusoe specifically, but just the idea of mining um, Bitcoin and asked if H2S gas can be used And I told him off the top of my head, I assume that it would have to be treated. Um, You just said that, you know, just regular gas doesn't have to be treated. If it's H2S, does it have to go through some type of treatment process or have you guys even um, started dealing with that yet?
2: Yeah, so H2S, uh, it's it's definitely nasty stuff. Um, it would need to be treated. We have a sort of a specification we put out where we want to have uh, less than 20 ppm H2S. And there are, the good news is there are a lot of off-the-shelf ways to treat H2S. But there is there's an expense to that stuff if you're using one of the consumable uh, re, you know reagents or a couple different ways you can do it. But basically, uh, we need to get the H2S down to a level where it's not going to cause too much interference with our equipment. Yeah. And there's also a, a permitting side to that. I mean, you can't really burn super sulfur-rich gas without creating a lot of SO2, um, and so that's you know, you start getting into some Clean Air Act stuff, and you know, across the board, treating it's the way to go. Yeah, and then
1: moving over to the operations of the data centers and the servers. Um, I think you and I had talked about this on the phone once, um, but you guys started off, didn't you start off in the Bakken? Is that where you started deploying the units? And obviously it's colder up there. So you don't run into as many overheating issues as you would in South Texas or the Permian Basin. So how does the cooling work and how do you guys think about it to make it a sustainable technology in those extremely rough environments?
2: Yeah, the cooling is a big part of it and you're right. We did start with these sort of Northern latitudes. So Bakken, uh, Powder River Basin, DJ Basin, those were our three first markets. And most of it's been in the Bakken, North Dakota and Montana. So the cold air helps a lot. It just kind of keeps everything nice and happy inside the box. It can get too cold you can actually have issues where the computers are too cold to turn on. So if you have an unexpected outage or something and you're trying to turn it back on, we've, we've been able to solve a lot of that in software. Um, About about half of our team is maybe about a third of our team is really talented group of software engineers. that are actually based in our San Francisco office. And so they've been able to work with us to solve some of those operational issues in the field by making it easier to, interact with the miners, you know, control their consumption of gas. If the gas pressure is dipping, they'll sort of, you know, dial down the power consumption of the miners automatically and then ramp it back up as the gas comes back. a lot of really cool sort of control system stuff there. But, um, you know, to answer your question, I mean, starting with the cold latitudes was great. And, and then, you know, we have new designs coming for Texas, probably next year, we're going to start deploying things down at the Permian. There's clearly the largest, opportunity for flare mitigation is in Texas, New Mexico, through the Permian Basin. And then if you look internationally, a lot of gas is produced in very hot places. I mean, you guys know this, but it's West Africa, it's, you know, a lot of offshore stuff, a lot of in South America, these are hot places where you need to have a good solution. So we're developing that next generation data center specifically for warm climates. I think we could deploy our existing solution pretty effectively. Um, as it is, you know, if we, if we selected the right components, we've got a way to do that into a warm climate. We've run through those 90 and hundred degree days, but you start talking about Permian summers, it's hot, it's it's hot. It's hot. It's you know, the computers are not going to like that really. So are you guys able to, so to do like like water cooling right now? Sorry, say that again.
0: Are you guys able to do water cooling?
2: So liquid immersion cooling is an option. It's not water. It's a dielectric fluid. So it's non-conductive for the electricity. Uh, and you can you can immerse the chips directly in a bath of that dielectric fluid. And there are some vendors that are coming with that solution now. We're, we're going to probably take the approach of, you know, working with some existing solutions and then probably um, helping to customize those for our own our own needs and purposes, because the way we do it is a little different in terms of integrating our control system and working with natural gas power generation. So there, there, there's a little bit of a customization process there, but yeah, that is one of the, one of the options we're looking at for warm climates.
1: So I got a, I got a question for you. You said about a third of your team is software developers and you mentioned that you guys have all these algorithms developed to where you can actually control and, you know, mitigate with the uh, flow of gas. So, I know that there's a few players in the space when it comes to trying to tackle this problem, but Crusoe stands out as the leader in the space to me. Do you think that your proprietary, you know, is what makes Crusoe special is the ability to do things like this, like develop the software that controls? I mean, anyone can go buy a data center, right? And try to hook it up to a well and generate power and try to mine Bitcoin. But what do you see as being as really else competitive edge?
2: I mean, the technology piece is definitely a big part of it. My co-founder Chase, he's, I mean, he's, he's incredible in terms of what he's been able to do from putting together a technology team that has, I think, really separated us from any competition in terms of the amount of automation and controls and um, just really smart tools that have been implemented there on the software side. It means that we can do a lot more with fewer boots in the ground. And it also means we can hit much higher run times and sort of much more predictable run times than I think you could if you were just, you know, having somebody go out and restart the generator manually whenever it went down because, you know, there hadn't been the thought upstream to prevent it from going down. So it's just a lot of that preventative operational automation that that helps. And then on the ops side, it's, it's pretty hard to put together a team that can operate at this kind of scale with a perfect safety record in a completely new technology application um, and merge that into a, a tech company culture. I mean, we've taken roustabouts and, you know, oilfield electricians and, and guys from fracking and crews and merged them with software engineers from Stanford and Berkeley, and they communicate daily on... Slack and uh, and all these technology platforms we put together, it's not easy. I mean, I think just getting the execution side of it is probably the hardest and doing it at this scale. Like we, we just purchased a turbine. We're about to do a two and a half million cubic foot per day turbine project with 18 data centers. You know, this is like very wait, sophisticated. Wait, wait. You, can't, you can't just
0: drop that bomb on us. You need to walk us through this, through this turbine, 18 data centers. So let's unpack that a little bit.
2: So, I mean, it's a full blown natural gas turbine generator and it's a, you know, 15 megawatt class unit, solar Titan 130. We bought it from a a pipeline company out of sort of a semi-distressed situation and we're able to get a good price on it. Now we're refurbishing it, you know, about a million dollar refurbishment. (laughs) The engineering that goes into something like that just to, you know, configure it correctly for, for a it was in the Permian, it's going to now go in the Bakken, so we have to repackage it for Arctic and get it ready to interact with our data centers from a power distribution standpoint. So, I mean, all that is a pretty big process. And uh, I think in concept, yes, you take gas, turn it into Bitcoin. (laughs) The execution of that? (laughs) is Ten thousand difficult problems you have to solve, and we've we've like made the mistakes and solved the problems to the point where now we can we really can't show up, and it's like three four days you've got a flaring solution, and none of your people have to worry. It's just we took care of it. Um, yeah, it, and that, getting from here to there has it, been the hard part. So, <laughs> will
0: be eighteen data centers on a single like pad, or are you guys aggregating gas from an entire lease and then piping it into it, or like how does that work?
2: It'll, you could do either option. Uh, the first project is, is more likely to be a single well pad, five plus new wells um, in, in, a, in a very kind of core acreage position where the wells will produce a lot of gas. And this operator wants to not flare. They actually have stricter internal controls on flaring than the state has. So they're looking for a solution where they can just, you know, deploy a large scale flare mitigation solution from day one.
1: So you talked about, you know, doing the, this huge project and, you know, it's a million dollar refurb on the equipment and it's a capital intensive business, right? And I think that you mentioned uh, how, how much capital have you guys raised up to this point? Uh,
2: so we've we've raised 30. So, so we're about to make a, a, an announcement here, but we just did a, a safe round on top of our series A. So I guess when you add it all together, we're we're in the sort of um, getting close to forty million dollars of equity, and then there's been about another sixty million of um, generator financing and project financing for the data centers. So the generators are financed with more of a cap. but it's, it's more of a traditional credit facility, and then the data centers themselves we have some joint ventures that we've worked out. So it's it's like a so more of a me- mezzanine thing. Yeah. What's a, the a
1: business model for you guys? I wasn't done asking my questions about funding, Jake. Come on.
0: Okay, we'll keep going. Keep going. Then. <laughs> Let's we'll get to the business model in a second.
1: <laughs> I, I was going to ask you real quick. You guys are backed by the Winklevoss twins, right? They uh, invested in your initial round. Is that oh, yeah, correct? That's right.
2: Yeah, they did. Um, we've had really great equity investors. I mean, Bain Capital Ventures, Founders Fund—that's Peter Thiel's, yeah. uh, sort of famous out in Silicon Valley. Um, we had KCK, which is an industrial technology VC. The Winklevoss twins through Winklevoss Capital have been in our equity investments. What are they um, like? They, they, you know, we—they're they, great. They're—they're they're very supportive. Um, we've done some—we've done some work with them. And Upper 90, our our JV partner on the on the Mezzanine credit side, and we've done a webinar with Cameron, and he basically spent an hour with us and our investors just talking about how they look at Bitcoin and how they look at the opportunity to have green. Bitcoin mining and why that's important for the future of the of the asset class.
1: Yeah, so I I, I'm really curious. You know, you have Winklevoss twins, you have Founders Fund, you know, Peter Thiel's fund, and. I mean, these are huge names, right? Massive names and very traditional Silicon Valley type investors. So, when you're an oil and gas company, um, I mean, you guys aren't an oil and gas company, right? I mean, really in my mind, technologies like Crusoe can be looked at as clean tech, right? It's a very pragmatic way of going about the energy transition where you're making the operation of extracting hydrocarbons um, cleaner. What? How did they view the business and was that a barrier for them when you came in saying, hey, we have a technology that's going to improve the oil and gas industry? What were their reactions to that?
2: You know, I think that's exactly the kind of question I want to talk about, because it's what's it's what's interesting about merging two very different cultures. You've got the oil field and you've got Silicon Valley and it's confusing. I mean, I was like going back and forth between Williston and my wife was going to Stanford Business School. So we were living in Palo Alto, like on Sand Hill Road. Uh, And that flight through Denver, it's like two different worlds. I mean, you you get on the flight from Denver up to Williston and it's, it's, it's the oil field crowd. And (laughs) You know, I, I love these guys. They're they're it's great personalities. I mean, Colin, you know, you I think your background is you were like a downhole wireline guy, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and then you go back to San Francisco and it's it's amazing, you know, innovation, very inspiring, swing for the fences, just what does it mean to play to win? That's the mentality. It's and uh, so I mean to answer your question about how they looked at the business model, they looked at it. As exactly the way you described it, it's a it's a clean tech uh, environmental approach to Bitcoin mining. And if you take as a basic assumption that the world needs oil, it is the largest primary energy source of human society today. And it's and, and COVID, notwithstanding COVID, it's rising year over year. We need more of the stuff to keep seven billion people going, eleven billion people alive. Then the obligation. That we have until there is a, a clean energy system, which which is coming. I mean, I think I, I really am a cheerleader and an advocate for solar, wind, batteries, mm-hmm. baseload renewables, but it's going to take time. And if I'm benchmarking, it's going to take decades or generations or 100 years. I mean, it's a big thing to replace the entire energy infrastructure. And so our obligation is to extend the climate runway, is to do the best we can with the fossil fuels while we're producing them and while we need them, because that is an obligation to today's population. We also have this obligation to the future, which is, you know, don't emit any emissions you don't need to, don't waste any along the way, stop this flaring, find the leaks and plug them, switch from coal to gas. I mean, these are like obvious things. Why is China building 200 coal-fired power plants when we could be setting up an LNG mm-hmm. Project at Cove Point and, send, and sending you know LNG over to Asia and stopping let's, that mess. That's just the it. biggest environmental opportunity of our lifetime that is is completely misunderstood and underappreciated and you know those people need to look at that as a real uh, a real solution. Yeah today. But, you know, I know that I'm kind of like getting off on a tangent here. I like the way they I, I like it was, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a low cost Bitcoin mining operation. And the way that you win in Bitcoin mining is uh, like any commodity business. You have to be the low cost, you have to be able to be the low cost provider. And so having access to a differentiated energy source where th- this this gas is literally a problem for the upstream producer. It's, it's something that can cause their well to get shut in, get permits denied. I lived through that myself, right? I mean, I know this problem firsthand. Solving that for them is value generation for the upstream producer. And then that means that we can have access to a relatively low cost energy stream, which is the number one cost component in mining Bitcoin. It's it's power. That's about 80% of the cost structure. So having any advantage there through self-generating with with a wasted fuel stream and, uh, and financing the generators effectively that and buying them effectively in bulk. That's how you get your cost of power down and become, you know, really one of the leaders on the cost curve. And I think that's what we've done, you know, at this point where we feel like we're right at the bottom of that cost curve and really highly competitive. So we can take the volatility of Bitcoin. If it drops, we're kind of the last man standing. And then when things are rallying like they are now, you know, that's, that, that's a great moment too. But you have to build the business knowing that's not going to be every day you wake up and it's, you know, up 10%. There are a lot of days where you wake up and it's down 10%. <laughs> that's, that's how we plan our business model to be sustainable. Yeah.
1: So, I was actually someone on Twitter sent me a um, live video last night, and it was about 10 guys, really smart cats that are very um, in the weeds of Bitcoin mining. And a big, it was timely considering that we have this podcast today. And a big portion of the conversation was talking about the associated energy consumption and production of Bitcoin mining. And, you know, they were talking about how right now it's essentially a electricity arbitrage across the world that you're going to start seeing hotspots of Bitcoin miners, you know, coming up wherever there's cheapest electricity. They brought up a really good point that started making my mind run last night. And I'd love to kind of riff on this a little bit. It's a tangent, but they said, you know, they were talking about the ESG initiatives and how everyone's always bitching and complaining to them that, you know, Bitcoin is bad for the environment because it consumes so much energy. But they said that you really, we should look at Bitcoin as a battery. And I started thinking about that because you take this stranded energy source out in the middle of West Texas, you know, natural gas, And you turn it into Bitcoin and then within seconds or minutes, it can be transported anywhere across the world. It almost in effect does act like a battery storing what would have been wasted energy. And so how do you think about, you know, I don't even know what my question is, but, you know, on a macro level for society you know, I, I can think of the impacts that it has on Texas. You know, we've had the railroad commissioners on our podcast, uh, Ryan Sitton, Jim Wright. And I mean, these guys are getting hammered on the flaring issue and they're in a really hard spot, right? Because you, if you shut down flaring, you shut down the oil and gas industry. So, not only are there environmental impacts, there's huge economic impacts that come with it too. So a technology like this could be revolutionary to a place like Texas. Um, But how do you see it? Like really, you know, if you guys are able to scale the technology across the world, how does it, how does it impact society? How does it change the way that we live day to day?
2: It's a, it's a, it's a great question. It's a big question. You know, starting with the uh, sort of energy, you know, the energy consumption side of, of Bitcoin. Um, It's true. It's always been one of the, the sort of complaints or criticisms of Bitcoin is that historically it was mined mostly in China, mostly on coal. I mean, imagine what a Mongolian coal-fired power plant looks like. You don't want to do any more of that. Right? You want to do well, less when of you,
1: that. When you mentioned, you know, traveling the world and seeing that, that was my first thought because I see the number of coal plants that China is building. And I mean, it's just mind boggling. And I'm like, man, that's got to be some of the dirtiest energy source that there could be.
2: It is Crazy, dude. I mean, I lived in Beijing and Shanghai for five months and it's apocalyptic. At least it was back in 2010. You could not see the top of the skyscraper because the air was so cloudy. You couldn't see it on the block some days. You know, they talk about PPM from the forest fires, right? Or, or the sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the the P5, the particle size, the, the smallest particle size. The, the scale tops out at 500, right? For whatever sensor they were using to measure this. And um, it was often over 500 in Beijing. Like if it's over 200 in Paris, they're shutting down school. And I'm just saying you wake up and you look out the window and you're like, I'm taking days off my life by being here. This is crazy. So this is completely poorly understood. Uh, The world is a growing population demanding better and better quality of life, and they're doing it with coal unless we give them natural gas. That's the main trade going on in the energy system now. Renewables today are a small single-digit percentage of the primary energy supply. I mean, the real conversation is coal versus gas, and gas is so much better. Like, we need to be using this out there. Um, And my view is that, you know, providing flare gas to the Bitcoin mining system is a great environmental benefit because we're going to be out competing you know, dirtier coal-based power generation. Now, it is true that a lot of Bitcoin mining has transitioned to hydro. I mean, hydro is a very cheap energy source. So you've got, especially in the rainy season in China, a lot of the miners are actually mobile and they, and they migrate down there to the south and they'll they'll get on this really cheap hydropower for a period of time. And then when the rainy season ends, you actually see it in the hash rate of the network. All the Chinese miners come offline and then they migrate it to Mongolia and they go back on coal. So I feel like I am competing with Chinese miners, mostly competing with coal fired. And every single time that we can, you know, through marginal economics, displace one of them, I feel that is an environmental win. So I kind of start there. But I also think you're right. There's this um, there's a marketing, there's a there's a transportation logistics problem that is prevalent throughout the energy industry. And Bitcoin is one way to solve it because you can take value uh, in a place you can take energy in a place where there is no value for it. You can monetize it and transport the value much more easily than you can. The molecules. Uh, One thing we say is it's easier to transport a bit than a molecule. So the flare gas has no value at the wellhead where there's no pipeline, but the Bitcoin does. And if we can just turn it into that digital product that has value and then transport that, it has solved the transportation logistics problem, which is at the heart of flaring. It is a you know, capacity on pipelines issue, access to pipelines issue, right of way, all these things, you can kind of get rid of those and, and just uh, deal with the problem right where it's occurring. You know, I think there are similar dynamics at play, even on the grid, with renewables. And there are times when the prices of certain resources are, you know, really skewed, even negative in wind. You know, you start looking at some of the the windy days where there's just such an excess supply of wind power. um, You know, we start to look at In addition to just flare gas, what are the other types of stranded energy that you might be able to address with this, the same kind of mentality you're talking about, you know, solving the value creation versus value realization problem and logistics, the transmission in between, it's easier to do it sometimes with a digital solution than it is with a physical solution.
1: You know, you, that point that you brought up about China, you know, actually being able to see the dip in hash rate as the rainy season ends and they migrate back up to Mongolia brought up a thought of mine. Do you ever think about, you know, I don't have that number off the top of my head, but I think China accounts for somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of the hash rate um, on Bitcoin mining. And do you ever think like you've made a comment about you compete against the coal fired um, plants that they have over there and, you know, really trying to offset that with what you're doing over here, capturing natural gas. I mean, it seems like one, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin. Um, You know, I, I I just think that the impact that it's going to have on the world over the next few decades is you can't measure it, but it also seems to become a political and sovereign issue as well. When you have China, controlling the majority of the hash rate and they're doing it based off cold fire plants, you know, cheap. This is, Man, there's so many angles to take on this conversation. But one, you know, I talk to a lot of clean tech founders and I, just like you, I'm very bullish on renewables and clean tech in the future. But one thing that I don't think that we, we should think about this in a pragmatic nature to where we don't put ourselves at risk to other countries who are willing to use dirtier fuel options, right? And you could see that within Bitcoin if they're willing to set up more data centers that are fired by coal. And we're losing that battle because we don't have access to cheaper energy. You know, it just seems like that creates a political and, um, sovereign problem over, over time.
2: Yeah. I mean, what if, what if, uh, what would you think if China had 70% of the gold? I mean, it might be a concern. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that Bitcoin replaces gold, and that's essentially the, the model that I think most people view this, is millennials will come to view Bitcoin like gold. Mm-hmm. That will be the preferred store of value safe haven asset for you know a growing percentage of people, or at least some portion of their safe haven allocation goes into to Bitcoin. So I think you do have to look at it as gold digital gold. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, it's important to have some <laughs> as a country. You want you don't want to be competed on the mining side, but the mining is what secures the Bitcoin network.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If more than 50% of the miners are in one person's hands, they can start. That's one of the only failure mechanisms of Bitcoin is that somebody can do a 51% attack on the network. So you really want it to be distributed widely, not just by companies, but geographically. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an absolute strategic imperative for the United States to become bigger participant in Bitcoin mining. And I think the best way for us to do that is solve the flare gas problem with it. It solves an environmental problem and it solves an economic problem and it solves a, a strategic yeah. you know, future of digital currency. We're problem.
1: literally burning off one of our resources you know a valuable resource we're just burning it off it's terrible for the environment and there's been you know there's been no solution for it and it's really you know you you think about the timing of this 10 years ago you know there was bitcoin was invented you know this wasn't even a solution and cloud computing and just everything wasn't there so you know is the timing is the timing right for it now i think that it's viable i think that you guys are proving that it's viable that the technology's there and that we can do it you know how are things looking from like the emp side in terms of adopting i think 2020 has probably been beneficial to a company like crusoe because every emp i hear like every management team i talk to now they're looking at what can we do with our gas bitcoin mining okay oh shit, we can make we can actually improve our ESG score and bring some revenue in like, that'd be great. Um, You know, they're looking at putting solar panels out on their leases. You know, how do you see that side of the market in terms of adopting this? Is it something that people are starting to look at more seriously or are they still kind of waving you off?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're under all these NDAs with producers, so I, I, I can never say names, <laughs> yeah. but I think actually th- that's starting to change. Some of them are now saying, can we do a joint press release? So it, it's possible the next month or two, you'll see some things,
1: but hey, some Hey, of the if you do a joint press release, y'all should, uh, we'll do it on Digital Wall Catters. We'll get you guys on a show.
2: I would love to. <laughs> no, there's, there are one or two that I think would open people's eyes. Like, wow, that company is going- uh in doing digital flare mitigation like this is for real now um and so we those are signed deals but we just haven't been able to announce the names yet so to answer your question yeah i think it's very much part of the conversation i think that tipping point has occurred where it used to be sort of this you know gimmicky like maybe we could do bitcoin mining uh wouldn't that be crazy until now it's like wow all these public companies are doing digital flare mitigation they're getting sort of positive press and and like praise from the investor and board director perspective. Um, we should probably take a look at this. Why aren't we taking a look at this? That's been an interesting transition. So the sales process has really changed where, you know, they don't look at us like we're these, you know, crazy, you know, garage startup people anymore. <laughs> I mean, we're <laughs> now we're 50 people and we've got a operations center in Williston and um and, and we've deployed a lot of this stuff. So I think it's, it's kind of tipped over.
0: Yeah. And so I saw my it. question earlier, what is the business model? <laughs> sure. Jake, Jake finally got to ask.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Jake. How uh, do you guys make money? <laughs> so we make money by mining Bitcoin at, at, at a relatively competitive cost basis. And, selling the Bitcoin for dollars. So our revenues is computing revenue. And actually now we're starting to get into other types of computing as well. So we've got a a project going with um, a group that's doing rendering on GPUs. Rendering is a very energy intensive type of computing. There are some some super energy intensive types of um, AI model training that are expensive. And and uh, the cost structure is mostly energy is is one of the biggest inputs in the cost structure. So I think we can replicate the Bitcoin mining uh, revenue stream and other types of computing. But Bitcoin was an easy starting point for a variety of reasons from networking and, you know, customer, there's no digital customer. Um, So that's our revenue stream. Our proposition to the oil company is also super simple. It's, you know, we will pay you uh, for the gas. It's something, and there was zero before. In fact, there was a negative before. You had regulatory cost and pressure. You might have your well shut in. You might have your production curtailed. It's a state-by-state regulatory regime. So we solved that problem. You can continue to produce the oil um, in a compliant way. Uh, then we also take away the sort of environmental black eye. And and, and there's a in that place, there's now a very... Interesting ESG digital transformation story to tell, and there's some revenue. So and I think it's a, it's a win for them. It's a it's a zero capex, zero opex, generally. In some cases, if it's a if it's a shorter term project or with a less reliable gas supply, we may charge a small service fee, but still completely, um, you know, sort of a different ballpark of the economics than a lot of the solutions that I looked at when I was in that seat, where it was like. You know, pay me hundred thousand dollars a month, and uh, and 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 some of the flare gas will go away. And so now we're we're in a position where we can really offer basically a free solution that takes away a large chunk of flare gas. So
0: like you said, you guys started with the Bitcoin, then you got into you know the AI ML training models. You got into rendering. Like, what is the? I mean, it seems like there's there's endless amounts of options there. But like looking, like say you guys get tons and tons of traction, which I think you will. I think you're definitely onto something huge here. Like, what's like maybe three year goal for you guys? Like is, where are you at on that?
2: You know, we're, it's so funny. We, we had our board meeting, our, our 2021 b- budget board meeting earlier last week. And uh, we presented this growth trajectory that, you know, I thought was pretty, it's pretty strong. You know, we're going to, grow a ton and this is how we're gonna spend the money. And you know, and we're gonna do these projects with some big operators. And the VC approach is so refreshing. It's so exciting. It's like, literally we have this board member who's this really great guy um, from, from Bain Capital Ventures. And, and he's an observer on the board, Bain's on the board. Um, and he said, what does it look like to play to win? Like, this is a cute budget. You know, like, this is great that you guys think you can grow grow here. Like, what does it look like to go out there and just, you know, make the most of the opportunity? And I think that as long as we have board members and investors pressing us like that, the growth trajectory, they're basically saying if, you know, if the opportunity is there and you guys continue to execute on it, there is money to grow at whatever pace you really need to grow. That's the VC approach. Like we will continue to back the the, the winning horse in this race. Um, and, and there's you know sort of a, a lot of fundraising available to you if, if, if that's the story that you can tell. So I view our growth trajectory as being pretty steep. Um, and I would say we're getting into the many tens of millions of cubic feet of gas per day and really moving The needle on the flare gas problem, like in the Bakken, for example, it's about 250 million cubic feet a day. We can really be a part of the solution on that. We already are, you know, we're making a dent now, but we need to get, you know, we need to grow multiple orders of magnitude to really solve it. Um, We're not orders of magnitude, but multiples at least. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine a future like that, and I think the team is. Is ready for that. That's what everybody's here to do. Chase is very good at painting that picture. He he really is a sort of big picture thinker and and looking at it from what what's the whole opportunity and how do we go out and and do that.
1: So before Love we it. before we wrap this up, I kind of want to go back to the topic of the energy transition. So one first, thank you for the kind words that you had at the beginning of the podcast. I agree with you. I think Wall Ketters does have a massive obligation in terms of cultivating communities and energy. And, you know, currently I talked to a lot of clean tech founders, you know, I just left uh, lunch with one, one of the people over at Greentown Labs and talking about all the great content we can create over there. And, you know, there's a lot of people right now in oil and gas, obviously just with the events that have happened in 2020 that, you know, they're out of work and you're talking about one of the most technical, intelligent workforces in the world. And when I talk to a lot of these clean tech founders, you know they're not really they're not really looking to dip into the oil and gas think tank and find some of these engineers, and I, I think that. That's where Digital Wildcatters really brings the two worlds together and bridges them over because I don't think that they should operate in silos. I think, you know, it's technology like this, you know, uh, like Crusoe or uh, Power Century. Like, I love the technologies that take an approach of how can we make what we're doing today cleaner, safer, and more economic for companies. And so, do you have any advice or you know, let's even, let's talk about just your view on oil, the oil and gas industry moving forward over the next 10 to 20 years, because even, you know, we've had investors talking to us at Digital Wildcatters and, you know, I'll be talking to some VC up in New York city and they're asking us, Oh, why are you building a business in a a dying industry? And I'm like, look guys, Do you, you know, are we looking to build a company in the next 10 or 15 years? Like if, if you're worried about oil dying, you know, I'm not trying to sell out digital wall catters in 50 years when I'm 80 years old, you know, like oil and gas (laughs) is going to be here. And, And of course I think it can look different in 10 years and 20 years. And I'm very aware of those changes, but what's your take on the oil and gas industry moving forward in terms of its health and its viability over the next decade?
2: Man, it's such a, such an important question. And <clears throat> I mean, we could talk about this for, for an hour, so I'm going to try to think of <laughs> what I think are the most salient points, but it's something that's truly, uh, you know, a passion of mine is not just the oil industry, but the energy system, how we keep everybody alive on this planet and what it all means and what's the big context and why it matters and how do we do the best job we can with that. And so, you know, uh, uh, first of all, I really feel for the people that lost their jobs in this downturn, and they are extremely technically capable. Some of our best contributors on on the technical side of our, our company are um, not the Silicon Valley people, but we've got some really technical people in the field who find solutions that are extremely useful to us. And, and they're just curious, smart, hardworking people that um, I, I continue to be impressed every day by what a great workforce the oil field has and can offer. So if you're a clean tech founder out there, come hire some of these people because they're awesome and they're gonna work a lot harder and uh, and be really appreciative of the opportunity right now. So uh, take a look at that. But in terms of what the oil industry is gonna look like in the future, and I, I try to put it all in context, we had our December all-hands call, and I tried to step back and give a little bit of a philosophy on, on this stuff, and um, the way I framed it was, on the one hand, we cannot discount the environmental imperative. And a lot of people think about rising sea levels or worse storms, and to me, those are the white like, swan problems with climate change. They, they are the, the problems that you can almost anticipate, kind of know they probably get exacerbated. Um, this, I try to make it real for our oil field employees who may come from more of a skeptical background on some of this stuff. And I try to give some examples. You know, as a geologist, I have the benefit of geologic history. And the things that cause extinctions are rapid changes. Change is not the problem if it happens over a long enough period of time. But when you have a rapid change, it it really can throw the system into chaos. And what we are doing right now is a very rapid change. Uh, the, the sort of concentration of carbon in the atmosphere does not move around by two to three ppm per year in geologic history, which is what we're doing. We're adding two to three ppm per year. Uh, I mean, this is the kind of thing that is a prime culprit or suspect for what caused the Permian extinction was a gradual change in CO2 that eventually led to the melting of the methane hydrates. I don't know if you've heard about methane hydrates. That's a deep, dark hole you can go <laughs> down and it is scary. There is more carbon in frozen methane in the tundras and permafrost and shallow ocean sediment than all coal, oil, and gas combined. And if you melt that, and allow that tipping point and that that feedback loop to start. I and mean, last time that happened, 96% of the species died. I mean, so we are playing with dice we cannot roll. We, we can do some carbon emissions and, and actually things might get better for the environment to a certain extent. I mean, a slightly warmer climate, we're coming out of basically a glacial phase here and a little bit, we're kind of doing mean reversion. We're going back to a, a warmer climate. But if we were too fast, faster than, ecosystems and species can evolve, you don't want that blood on your hands. We, we can't play around with that for the next thousand years. We've got a window of time here that we can sort of like adjust and transition to a clean energy solution. That being said, the other truth, which is the economic truth, is everyone on this planet depends with their life on oil and gas today. I mean, it's not just transportation and the stuff that people think about. It's like fertilizer, it's, it, it, I mean I've been to places where they don't have access to abundant affordable energy and people think about quality of life like venti lattes or something it's it's like can I get a bowl of rice today can I get out of the slum can I get out of the favela can I get out of the ghetto people need that upward improvement in their quality of life and a prerequisite for that is abundant affordable energy. And I believe if you ban fracking, you ban oil and gas today, you're you're condemning billions of people to die. And and everyone's going to have a worse life because of that. So there are these two very difficult truths. One is the current system is inextricably dependent on oil and gas today. The other is if we get don't get off of it, we could really cause uh, some scary black swan tail risks here and so the way to think about it is a transition and i really advocate for this perspective of a two-phase transition one cleaning up the existing system as best as possible so that's that's where crusoe fits in you know that's no that's no waste no unnecessary emissions but that's also coal to gas switching i think it's just hugely underappreciated about how important that's been for achieving any kind of carbon reductions. And and we could do so much more. I mean, China should not be doing what it's doing. This is completely dangerous and irresponsible that they're building this many coal plants right now. It's like one a week they're commissioning gigawatt scale coal plants throughout Asia. That Their development banks are just financing these things. And we have the gas. It's literally being flared it's, it's a very affordable energy source that ha- emits half the carbon per unit energy. We should be sending it to Asia and preventing this explosion of, of coal power generation. Um, that's, the, that's the one piece is cleaning up the existing system. The second piece is building the new system. And really that's, you know, we need batteries. What we really need is good batteries uh, that can store solar and wind Affordably, because the solar and wind costs have come way down. Everybody's heard that story, but to get a 24/7 renewable system that's really truly like low carbon, you need to have awesome storage technology, and the costs there are are far too high still. So that's coming down also. Um, You know, personally, I invest a a lot into battery-related and lithium-related startups and and technologies, and I'm a big advocate for uh, trying to crack that nut. There's also maybe like safe nuclear and carbon capture and sequestration and, you know, carbon engineering. These are all the sort of build the future ideas. Uh, and I think it's both. It has to be both. You know, where I see the lowest hanging fruit is cleaning up the existing system. For a thousand dollars invested in the Crusoe system, we reduce six times more carbon than a solar panel.
1: That's crazy. Because
2: 24-7 yeah. plus we reduce crazy. You know that's that's the leverage that you get from cleaning up the existing system it's like a no brainer let's do it as long as we need oil and gas produce it as responsibly as possible
1: man i regret that we couldn't do this podcast in person i'm sure that we could riff for two hours on everything related to the energy transition and bitcoin and mining so we may have to do a follow-up episode sometime where we can cover these topics more um you know, if someone's listening to this episode, and I anticipate that you're going to get a lot of people reaching out, you know, we, Jake and I held a private dinner the other night in Houston and um, we had VCs there and EMP management teams. And the talk of the night was Bitcoin mining off of Flare Gas. I mean, it is a hot topic right now. So I, I'm hoping that a lot of people get value out of this episode. If they do and they want to learn more, where can they find Crusoe? What's the website? Are you guys on LinkedIn?
2: Sure, yeah, we're we're all over LinkedIn and social media. So Crusoenergy.com, that's where you can find Crusoe. We're on Twitter. Um you know, you can find us pretty easily there. I'm on Twitter. I have like a zero profile. <laughs> I have like less than a hundred followers. Oh, come on, it's, man. It's so funny. I, I, have like, I have like thousands of connections. So yeah. That's kind of my main what, social. What's your
1: handle on Twitter? I need to give you a it's, shout uh, out on Twitter.
2: It's Electron uh, Cowboy.
1: It's Electron Cowboy. Electron cowboy. <laughs> okay, well, hold on, hold on, hold just on. Just got another <laughs> follower. That just remind. So, Coley, the first time I heard about Bitcoin was like in 2011, 2012 time frame. And it was from my buddy, Bobby. And he's about West Texas, oil field, corn fed, big boys you can get. And he's telling me, man, you got to invest in Bitcoin. It's the future currency. And anyway, his name was Crypto Cowboy. That's what he went by. And so I always like kick myself in the ass. I'm like, fuck, I should have listened to Bobby back then if I would have just put one paycheck into Bitcoin. Bobby, Bobby knew. <laughs> yeah, Bobby knew. He saw He saw the future. So, man, really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, extremely bullish on you and Crusoe and the technology. So, I'm excited to do a update episode sometime in the future and see where you guys are at.
2: No, it's it's my honor and I'd love to, you know, come back and do it again sometime we could talk more about the energy transition but seriously guys you have a awesome platform you have a responsibility to make sure everybody has the same facts i mean in this moment in history we've got too many people living with too many different facts the energy industry doesn't need to be one of those i think there mm-hmm. is like a centrist you know, viewpoint that we can get to. We, I think we've been talking about a lot of those ideas here today and you guys are better than anyone else. I believe are in the position to advance some of that thinking and come up with some really common sense solutions. So keep doing what you're doing. Thanks man. I'm a big fan of you
0: guys too. Appreciate it really you means a lot, man. Appreciate that. All right guys, if you enjoyed the episode, please stay two seconds. Leave us a nice little five-star review. Send it all your friends and family, all your colleagues. We'll catch you guys on the next episode. Go, go, go.